um, within that. I don't know where to put this. Put it down there, put it up here. There's no space. Pastor, we need a bigger pulpit. Have I mentioned that to you before? I have, I think. Yeah, a little wing. Need a, yeah, that's it. That's all we need. And, uh, and the question we asked was respecting eternity and, um, and does it exist? And it's a vital question to ask because if you don't have an answer to that question, then, uh, then you may find yourself in real danger. And it's a reason why the church is here. It's a reason why the Bible exists. It's the, um, it's the very purpose of, of, of our lives as my life as a minister of the gospel. To, to tell people about the truth of the Bible and the truth of what it teaches about life in general. And, um, and it's a glorious hope that we have because that's what it culminates in and those who respond and receive the wonderful joy that's found in Christ. So we're going to open in a word of prayer. We'll dedicate this time to the Lord and we'll, uh, we'll start our study in this incredible book. Let's pray. Father, your grace... And your work, dear Lord, always within our within our lives is to grow us into the knowledge of who you are. That we may have faith to believe, to be saved, to know Christ, to have indeed eternal life. But there are many, dear Lord, who have rejected the truth of who you are, rejected God, rejected your word. And Father, we are, dear Lord, a sounding trumpet. We desire, dear Lord, to be a light in this world. For we know, dear Father, that men love darkness rather than light. And we pray, dear Father, that nevertheless, dear Lord, your spirit would work within their hearts and within their lives, that you would draw many unto Christ. And we pray, dear Father, that this work would be an enduring work, a work that would last all eternity, a work that would have reward and benefit for all people who believe and who trust in the truth of who you are who have received the gentle, loving, kindness and nature of Christ. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, our text that we're looking at this morning is found in Romans chapter 15. It's a text that I particularly selected. It's a text that I wanted to have presented as a foundation text for this church. And the reason why will be self-evident. It gives us an understanding of where our foundation is. And it's here in chapter 15 of the book of Romans. And just in verse 4, we gave you the context. Rather, Kess gave you the context. He read a good 13 verses of it that would provide a context for you that you would understand where it comes from. And it says there in verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. It was interesting choosing a name for the church. And it was interesting because the original name that I had, it was, it was taken by another church, and, um, and I liked it. I thought it was a oh, good, strong name for a church. You know, I like that. We'll go with that one. But one of the things that really, really inspired me was, was in summary so many people that we're aware of that are living lives without hope and it's not just in summary it's not just in summary you have a look at the confusion in the world today and there are so many living without hope and they don't have a foundation for what is right for what is wrong for what is true for what is false they are believing whatever is being told them by the media by government by 
whatever the popular idea is at any given moment of time. And they're losing hope. They're losing hope. At times they put their hope and their faith in political leaders. Well, if you see the range of political leaders that we have in the world today, it's not too difficult to understand why so many people are discouraged. Hope. It was my daughter Saskia that actually came up with the name and I thought, nah, it sounds too much like faith, you know. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know, I'm not sure, I, don't, I reckon, you know. And uh, what are we going to do? The next one we're going to plant charity? I mean, seriously. <laughs> right? And so initially it really, it really didn't apply. It, I, you know, I didn't think too much of it, but the more I thought of it, the more I thought, oh, how profound a name. You know? And then this verse came to my mind. This verse, because the focus of hope is in the Scriptures. That's where we get hope from. We don't get hope from the world. The world delivers a false hope. It doesn't deliver a real one. It keeps dangling these little carrots on a stick that keeps the donkey completely trying to follow it until he hopes to get the carrot, but it never gets it until he finds himself over a cliff in the end. And that is essentially what's happening to many people in the world today. They're not getting hope. They're not finding it because they're looking for it in all the wrong places. And we find it in the Scriptures. For whatsoever things were written aforetime are written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So, in our typical fashion, four-point message. And the first one is that which is written is applied practically. That which is written is applied practically. The second one is that which is written is affected emotionally. The third, that which is written is ordained eternally. And the fourth, if we get to it, is that which is written finds its end in hope. It is, first of all, applied practically. What we find within the Bible is that it gives you a range of historical experiences of such a multitude of people. And when we look at the scriptures and we see those experiences, we can apply those to our own circumstances, to our own lives. You see, when I struggle with something, whether it's a particular decision in one way or a decision in another way, I find no hope in me. I don't know about you, but I've been wrong occasionally. There was a time, of course, that uh, I didn't believe I could ever be wrong. Not me, not me. What I said was always right. I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. But it wasn't until later on that I started realising poor decisions that I'd been making time and time and time again. One decision after another, landing flat on its face. And it doesn't just affect me, see, because I have a family. You know, and it doesn't just affect them. You see, my decisions carry weight even with other people that I might be just having a general conversations with. My worldview has a particular effect on the lives of other people. I told one gentleman many years ago that I needed to put my business first in order to make my family first. False. Wrong. Completely wrong. And unfortunately, that individual has believed that and repeated that to me a number of years ago. And, and I, I looked at him and I said, yeah, but that was wrong. I was wrong. You got that from me. I was wrong. It's not true. It's not true. So we can be wrong. So our question is then, you know, what is it that applies to our learning? How can we gain understanding that applies to our learning? Look, if you've never been wrong, if you've never been wrong, then you should be the final authority. Okay? You should be the final authority. If you've never made an error and made a mistake, then you are reliable enough to be a final authority. 
and, uh, and I'll take my hat off to you. But, but if, if that's not the case, if you have been in error before, then you need to look for another authority. You need to look for another authority. And let me tell you something. Experience is a poor teacher. Why is experience a poor teacher? It's been said that experience consumes the years of man. It consumes the years of man. You make one mistake in this area over here and you may take years to learn from it if you ever do. If you ever do learn from it. Experience itself is a poor teacher. Um, Wisdom, however, related to experience, learns from it. And ideally, learns from the experience of others. You see somebody else moving in a particular direction and you see where they end up, there's a good chance if you made the same decision, you'll end up in the same situation. Experience learns at least from the experience of others. Wisdom learns at least from the experience of others. But, you know, wisdom isn't just something that's isolated. It's not something that's out there. We can understand the truth of a particular matter. We know by wisdom that um, if you indulge in drugs, it doesn't have a good outcome. There's no good outcome indulging in drugs. We see that around us, okay? There's no good outcome. So wisdom recognises that outcome and applies it to itself, okay? And applies it to you. Wisdom tells you the, uh, oh, here's one, sex before marriage. The Bible refers to that as fornication. It tells you that that doesn't have a good outcome. Why? Because without a binding relationship, it doesn't instill security, in the lives of either party or both. It's dangerous in that respect. The whole try before you buy lie that I even excused myself with in earlier days has an outcome that might be a painful consequence long-lasting. Okay, so again, wisdom tells us that and our desires tell us something different. Wisdom tells you that living beyond your means will lead to poverty. It tells you that rejecting the counsel of godly people and accepting the counsel of fools will not end well. Did you ever notice when you were young and you were going through a particular problem, you didn't go to your parents? You went to your mates. You went to your peers. We go to our peers when we're going through a problem. Like they are the epitome of wisdom. You know, We asked their opinion on something. Now, the funny thing is, they have either never gone through that particular issue themselves, or if they have gone through that particular issue, it didn't, it didn't end well and they didn't learn from it. Now, maybe that might be telling you something about the children, or it might be telling you something about the parents. It might be telling you something about the parents. The Bible has wisdom literature within it. It has books of wisdom within it. And I would encourage you to memorise them. Memorise the book of Proverbs. Memorise a chapter in Proverbs. Have a look at the incredible wisdom that's contained in that book. Proverbs 4, 4, 5 says, Get wisdom, get understanding. Forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Get understanding. Let me ask you a question. What's the beginning of wisdom? What's the beginning of wisdom? Come on, someone knows. What's the beginning of wisdom? Sorry? The fear of God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
It gives you such a strong, powerful indication that you would understand that if you do not have a fear of God, if you don't know God or you've rejected it, Him, you have already forsaken wisdom. Why? Because the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day it utters speech. Night unto night it shows knowledge. The Bible says if the heavens are declaring, that is speaking out constantly the glory of God, then it tells you that the nature and the reality of who God is is self-evident. Self-evident. Romans chapter 1 says that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being what? Understood by the things that are made. We can understand the reality of God by the things that are made. We recognise design imminent and evident within all of creation. You know? I mean, if you guys found a chair on the moon, you wouldn't think it just grew there by a whole bunch of random atoms coming together and molecules in just sort of chance mutation. No, would you? Why? Because you understand, you recognise the chair, the chair has some symmetry to it, it also has, seems to have a purpose, you know? And some of them, like these ones, are comfy, you know? We used to sit on bricks at Faith Baptist Church. That's <laughs> true, that's true. And he, he finally got some nice, comfortable chairs there now, which, are, which we well really, yeah, well really appreciated, you know? But the thing is, that's why wisdom begins with the fear and the knowledge of God. If you don't have a recognition that God is, you haven't even begun to be wise. Uh, the fool has said in his heart, there what? Is no God. It's the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. So what an incredible book. Wisdom hearkens to counsel. You know, experience teaches you a certain amount. But experience also has a little bit of a limit because experience is like historical, isn't it? Right? When you experience something, it's part of now history. Do you know what man learns from history? Let me give you a couple of quotes. Good answer. Good answer. You've read ahead. George Frederick Hegel said, But what experience in history teaches this, that people and governments never have learned anything from history or acted on the principles deduced from it. George Bernard Shaw said this, we learn from history that we learn nothing from history. And of course we've got that famous quote from yet another George, there's three Georges in a row here, George Santayana, who said, those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Condemned to repeat it. Friends, we are living in a world condemned to repeat history. It wasn't many years ago that I walked past a signpost in Sunbury and wrapped around it was an encouragement for people to come and listen to the, uh, the presentation of Marxism. Marxism. And Marxism, for those that don't know, is a political ideology. It results in a form of government called communism. Communism basically finds itself in a tyrannical rule and government. Why do people like the idea of Marxism? Because it makes these promises but can't deliver. And we have millions of people dead because of Marxism. We have the historical evidence in China, we have it in Russia, we have it in North Korea now. What do men learn from history? Even present history? Nothing. Learn nothing from it. We learn nothing from it. So, in other words, um, History, experience has its limits. But godly counsel, godly counsel is very, very different. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 119, if you have your Bibles with you. 
Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It has 176 verses, all but four verses specifically speak about the very Word of God. It's broken into 22 different segments. Each segment that it's broken into is determined by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Each segment is eight verses. Every verse within that segment begins with that letter of the alphabet that identifies it. Incredible, incredible how that's been put together and still being able to make perfect sense of. So it goes from A, B, C, D, and it goes on in that, in that direction. In Psalm 119, verse 97, or verse 99, we'll go from verse 99. Oh, something really interesting. So I don't know if you've ever gotten this. In, in Psalm 119, there's seven different words, seven different words that refer to the word and they're found in the first seven verses of Psalm 119. So other than the word word, you have seven other words and they're all found within the first seven verses. I don't know, design? I, I think it was there on purpose, you know. So you have the law of the Lord, testimonies, ways, precepts, statutes, judgments and commandments. He says in verse 99, he says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We, without the word of God, without that counsel, without godly counsel, the world is groping about in the dark. The world is groping about in the dark. They're trying to find light. They're trying to find hope. They're trying to find understanding. And they're trying to find it in everything but God. The second point is that that which is written is affected emotionally. For whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. I don't know if you ever recognise that false peace is not comfort. False peace is not comfort. There's a lot of people that struggle with different issues within their lives and they search for things that do not benefit them. They search for things that have no benefit within them and doesn't have a lasting benefit. It's a temporary high or a temporary fix. A false peace cannot bring true comfort. Psychiatrists, psychoanalysts today generally work with prescribed drugs. They'll give antidepressants as an antidote for the depressed. And the concealment of guilt is the main band-aid for the guilty. Their focus is that. Their desire is not to heal you. Their desire is to take away the pain, to take away the symptom. I don't know, have you ever been ill and you had a particular symptom and you think, oh, oh, what's that? Do you ever notice something about cancer? Cancer often doesn't raise its head within your body until you notice a pain or you notice something significant that's changed within your life. Unfortunately, at that time, most of the time, it's too late. It's too late to do anything uh, gentle 
with it. It manifests itself and it festers within you. Okay? But taking painkillers to disguise the pain won't get rid of the cancer. But that's what people do today. You see, it's not just there. They don't just seek it there. Every single month, the women's magazines come out and they've got the astrology. They've got horoscopes. So now you're to be able to determine from what the stars and the planets and this particular alignment has and what your life's going to manifest. I mean, I used to sort of go with it because that's what people within my family actually believed. And I used to check it out myself every now and again. I'm a Virgo. You're going to find a beautiful woman today. And it happened, you know. It happened. And I married her. No, it didn't actually happen exactly that way. But <laughs> beautiful woman, but it didn't come up in the horoscope. But you'll notice something. We're guided by this pathetic idea. We, we think that somehow stars and planets that form in a certain line um, in a particular way have a personal effect on me, Eddie Judetti, here on Earth, in Sunbury. Of all places. But God doesn't exist. I'm happy to believe that, but God doesn't exist. What? This is the direction so many people are going, but false peace is not comfort. It's not comfort. So some go to fortune tellers and they check out their monthly columns, as I mentioned. Men, many of them, hide themselves in their work. Many of them drink themselves to sleep. Teenagers are removing their minds chemically. Others are engaging in adrenaline-filled experiments, addicting themselves to every form of extreme sports, to sex, to whatever, you name it. That's what they hide themselves in. Others deteriorate their minds on entertainment of all sorts, and the world is giving to them that which they think they desire. Continually. Filling their minds with music, movies and games. Some are even dying chasing imaginary creatures on their telephones. I don't know if you saw it, but I saw it. I was driving into work and I'm heading down the freeway and there I see it on the big sign by Vic Roads at the side of the road. Do not Pokemon and drive. <laughs> it's directed to adults, people. <laughs> not children. Grown-ups are doing this. But this is insane, you know. What are we doing? We're amusing ourselves. Do you know what amuse means? A means without. Muse means mind. Without mind. When you amuse yourself, you are doing it completely absent of any mental faculty you may have. And there's a good chance you're deteriorating whatever's left. False peace is not comfort. And none of this is new. The Bible, it says in Isaiah, he laments this. And this is a God's own words condemning Israel. Have a listen to this. Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. What's he saying? You're going to be struggling with so many different things in your life and you're wearied with all these different counsels. You won't come to me. Matter of fact, he says that in chapter 30. He says, Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. What are we doing? What are we doing? We're looking for counsel that doesn't profit. Matter of fact, the very counsel that we are looking for is getting us deeper and deeper into trouble, and we don't even see it. 
We don't even recognise it. Some of the most insecure people I have ever met, the more troubled people that I've ever met, are those that have given themselves over to this ridiculous behaviour. And it breaks your heart. They'll search for everything else. Not Christ. Not the Lord. They won't seek him. They won't seek his counsel. They won't trust the word. That everything else. I had to be challenged emotionally before I came to Christ. I had to be challenged with my own pride. I had to be challenged in my own uh, comfort. Because... This next part of that point is the true peace may be gained uncomfortably. And when I had to see my sin for all its filth, for everything that it is, and my heart needed to be broken and humbled before I found the Lord or before he found me. It wasn't a comfortable process, guys. It wasn't a comfortable process. I remember I had a pizza shop many years ago and, uh, and I was working... There and I was also working in a display home part time because I was making no money in the pizza shop. My pizzas weren't as good as my dad's. <laughs> and Thank you. and uh, you're welcome. <laughs> and um, and I found myself also uh, working. Uh, so I was working in a display home, working in the pizza shop, but I was also doing a um, a diploma of building construction at RMIT. And um, and I came back to work one day, and I was already struggling. I was already struggling financially and therefore struggling emotionally. And um, so I went back to work there that day, the next day, and I looked and the place was a mess. It was a pigsty. Um, we had a billiard table there as well and the balls were all out of the billiard table. No, nothing was really put away properly. It was a complete mess. I thought, mate, the guys must have been flat out last night. You know, they must have been busy. So I go to the cash register, check the till, look at the docket, and they took $176 for the night. That wasn't even enough to pay for the rent. You know, and I was just... I ended up falling down on my knees and uh, I didn't believe in God at the time and yet I was happy to curse him. So it's funny that, isn't it? That people don't believe in God yet they hate him. You sort of wonder how that works. How does that come together? How does that make any sense? You know? So I'm yelling at God, you know, and I'm there and I'm, you will not beat me. This will not beat me. Could you imagine a little ant saying to you, You will not beat me. You will not beat me. That's, you know, I look back at it now and I think, how ridiculous. You know, what a stupid thing to say, you know. And that's what people do today, you know. That's what people do today. It's ridiculous. But it does. True peace comes, but... It also comes uncomfortably. It means you have to admit your error. If it means that you may have to admit that up until this point you have been deceived. And we have all been deceived. I had been deceived. Deceived by my own counsel. Deceived by my own counsel. Deceived by the counsel of others. I had been deceived. But it means you have to admit it. And that's not an easy thing to do. Not, nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. What happens when you're told that you're wrong? When you're told that you're wrong, your immediate reaction is, oh, really? Oh, I'm wrong. Oh, I'm so sorry I'm wrong. No. Your immediate reaction is, well, you did this and this. And that seems to be what happens. You know, rebuke a fool and he will turn around and rend you. 
Fools despise wisdom and instruction, it says in Proverbs chapter 1. It warns us, speak not in the ears of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of thy words in Proverbs 23. Jesus actually gives the greater charge. He says this, he says, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. That's, that's, our, that's gentle Jesus' words. No? Calling fools swine and dogs. And that, that happens to us. That happens to us. But admitting your error, admitting your error, admitting that you are nothing without the Lord, and then coming to Him and trusting in Him. And now I can say, with, as Paul did in Galatians, when he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by, by the faith of the Son of God who died for me, who loved me, and gave his life for me. You know, that's the new man. That's the new creature in Christ. That which is written is ordained eternally, the third point. For whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. What we see in this is a hint of eternity. We see a hint of it there. It's the question we seek to answer, but it's introduced here. Um, in Isaiah 55, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, so it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. This is the power of the word of God. Have a look at what he's referring it to. He's referring it to the nature of water. Water comes down from the clouds and it waters the earth and it brings up all this wonderful nourishment for our own lives that we might be able to live. The beasts of the field graze in it and they devour the food that the water actually helps to grow. And what happens after that? Well, we know that the word or the water returns exactly back to where it came from. We live in a 100%, I never get the word right, hydronic, hydrolic, hydraulic, hydronic, I think it is, cycle. So it's this wonderful cycle of water that never gets wasted. It continues to go up and then it comes down. It's cast into the rivers, cast into the land, back into the ocean, and then it goes back to where it came from. This is the power of the Word of God. See, it's the Word of God that can change you. It's the Word of God that can um, bring fruit within your lives. Those that don't have the Word of God don't have the fruit that leads to life everlasting. Jesus says, search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, but they are they that testify of me. Within the scriptures we find the Lord, we find the Saviour, we find the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We find him within that text. And it's that which gives us the wonderful work that he does. The book, the Bible, is self-authenticating. It's self-authenticating, as far as its truth is concerned. It's self-authenticating. It authenticates itself. How does, it, how does it do that? If you're in a court of law or you're a criminal, so I'm a criminal there are three different ways that people can determine whether I am, whether the jury can determine whether I am guilty of a particular crime. Okay? Historically, 
historically, can they place me historically at the scene of the crime? Okay. The second one is whether or not I had a motive. In other words, a philosophical reason I believed true to commit the crime. Okay. And the third is that I had the intent to do so. In other words, I had within me a prophetical outcome that I desired to make real. And that's exactly how the Bible presents itself to you. It's actually self-incriminating. It says, test me. So the Bible says, test me. Within the Bible is history. You read from Genesis to Job, it has history. You read the, the accounts of the Gospels right through to the book of Acts, it has history. History that you can verify, that you can test, that you can check, that you can go back through and discover whether or not it's true. And what have they discovered? They've never discovered anything but that which affirmed the word of God. They will twist and turn. They will do all of that historically. And they've done that. I don't have time to go through all of that. There is a, also a philosophical ideas present within the Bible. We have the wisdom literature that I mentioned earlier. It presents itself with a particular worldview, a particular philosophy that you may come to know and understand. That's what it presents itself. You can test these things. And you can try them that they are true. But it also has a prophetical. It speaks. Get this. It speaks of things yet future. Written in the past. And it speaks with such detail. Such incredible detail. That leaves you with your mouth open. There are liberal scholars who have tried like mad to discredit the book of Daniel. And put it. In a later date. Why? Because it speaks so clearly about the history of Alexander the Great. It speaks so clearly about his endeavours. It speaks so clearly about his life, his death. It speaks so clearly about how he distributed the kingdom. It does that in the book of Daniel. It speaks about it so long before it actually occurred. And it's incredible to see that. But the wonderful thing that we see today is the prophecies concerning Israel. Prophecies concerning Israel. How incredible. They are. And the Bible's nothing like Nostradamus. Anybody know Nostradamus? No? So it's not cryptic. Right? It's, not, it's not cryptic in any way. It's clear. It's clear. And it does that really, really clear. He speaks about it in the Bible. It speaks that, that Israel will be dispersed among the nations in Amos chapter 9, verse 9. Scattered, it says in Zechariah. It says that Israel will be scattered amongst the entire nations. 70 AD, what happened? 70 AD, Titus Vespasian with the 12th legion of the Roman Empire came into Jerusalem and completely destroyed it. It dispersed the Jews and the Jews were scattered among all the nations. Incredibly, however, it also tells us something interesting. It tells us that in Ezekiel chapter 37 that they will all be regathered from all corners of the globe. The dry bones area in, uh, in Ezekiel 37. All of Israel are going to be regathered. And they're going to be brought back into the land. What? Hang on a second. We're talking about a period of over 1,900 years. 1,900 years. Ancient Babylon ruled the world. Does it exist anymore as an empire? doesn't even exist as a people group. The Assyrian Empire ruled the world. Does it exist anymore? Doesn't even exist as a people group. You know? There are very few people that identify themselves as Assyrians. 
I did meet one once. Actually, she's my accountant. And she said to me, oh, I'm a Syrian. I said, Syrian? She goes, no, I'm Syrian. I said, that's impossible. And she goes, what do you mean that's impossible? I said, because they don't exist anymore. She goes, you know who the Assyrians are? I said, yeah, I do. She goes, oh my goodness, nobody ever knew. I always told people that I'm a Syrian and no one ever knew what, who Assyrians were. I said, yeah, I knew who the Assyrians are. Or were. Here we have Israel. I mean, Israel. They didn't rule anything. except They couldn't even rule themselves well. You know? And they were scattered amongst all the nations. The Bible says God is going to bring them together. Do you know what else he says? He says, can a nation be formed in a day? Can a nation be formed in a day? In Isaiah 66 verse 8, 14th of May, 1948, the state of Israel was proclaimed by David Ben-Gurion. How can it be? How can it be a nation formed in a day? So we have a prophecy, several prophecies concerning the nation of Israel that we see from history come to pass. Okay? How do you do that? How do you do that in a book that's written in time? How do you do that unless you've got some other sort of knowledge that is, without, that is outside of time? It speaks about something else. Have a look at this one. It says that Israel will cause the deserts to bloom. The deserts will bloom in Israel. Isaiah 35 verse 1. Let me read you this article by CBN. CBN News article in 2014 says the Arava Desert gets about an inch of rain a year. And believe it or not, local farmers use that to their advantage. From here, there's a quote, from here to Europe, the distance is so short, it's a natural market for Israel. Badihi told, Badihi told CBN News, we are here ahead of everybody because of the weather. Despite the conditions, 500, 500 farming families here produce 60% of Israel's fresh vegetable exports and 10% of its cut flower market. We grow summer crops during the wintertime, said Mayan Kitron, director of flower research at the Arava R&D Centre at Moshav Hatzeva. I learned how to speak um, Hebrew. Um, how incredible is that? They export 60% to Europe of their fresh vegetables in a place that gets what? An inch of rain a year. How did they make the deserts bloom? Because of the technology that they've been able to put together. A lot of the technology that you guys carry around with you, iPhones, Samsung phones, the vast majority of the technology that's within that was developed in Israel. Pretty incredible, eh? So if you're going to be doing away with Israel, you've got to be doing away with all that thing as well. But it says something else about Israel. It speaks about a time yet future. Guys... Regardless of your position here today as a visitor, regardless of whether you know the Lord, regardless of whether you don't, keep a watch on Israel. Because, you see, if God was right about everything that we already see as history, he's also right about Israel's future. The Bible says that the entire world will come against Israel. The entire world. The Bible says that Israel is a cup of trembling. In the, in the entire world. Can you explain to me? Can you explain to me how a nation a quarter of the size of the state of Victoria finds itself in the newspapers almost every day? Why? Why is Israel significant? Why is Israel significant? The Bible speaks about all the nations gathered against 
the nation of Israel. And we can see that coming together today. The, new, the United Nations in 2015 made 20 resolutions against the state of Israel and only three against the rest of the world. United Nations is a communistic organisation. You have to understand that. They have their basis in socialism. They were planted by communism. Okay? And the vast majority of them are against Israel continually. So this is 20 against Israel, nothing against ISIS. One against Syria. Now, Syria slaughtered 200,000 of its own people during this period of time. And we have one resolution against them. It goes on and on and on, and you'll see this constantly. The Bible speaks about it in Ezekiel 38, 39, that Russia, Turkey and Iran will be coming against Israel. There will be a flood of nations coming against to destroy Israel. Prior to that, we have what's known as the Psalm 83 war. And this is the war that's going to be coming against Israel from its local neighbours, from Lebanon, from Syria, from uh, the West Bank and the like. They'll be coming against Israel. And the Bible says that they're going to rout them. And that sort of makes sense because they're going to grow in their population of land during that time. So what's my point? The point is, how can anything written within time speak about that which is going to happen? The Bible says that God inhabits eternity. He inhabits eternity. It's like, imagine being at a parade, right? And you're standing there in the parade and time is the parade coming by you. You see whatever the parts of that parade are within that time, but you only see time going by you, okay? Eternity is that where you are lifted above the parade and you can see the end from the beginning. You can see the entire picture. You know exactly what's going on. The Bible says that time, actually science tells you that time, matter and energy was created. Time is a physical property. It's part of this universe. It's part of this universe. When you, when you read the first four words of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God, in the beginning of what? In the beginning, time. God. God was already there in the beginning. He inhabits eternity. Eternity isn't a long time. All right? We often get a little bit confused. You know when you read um, Amazing Grace? When we've been there 10,000 years? You know? But eternity doesn't have time. There's no time within eternity. I can't tell you what it's like because I'm bounded by time and I've only existed here. But we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. He says this, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Last point. That which is written finds its end in hope. Friends, we can't see it far off can't see it far off. We don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. I don't even know if I'm going to be alive tomorrow. You know what's really interesting? Neither do you. Do you know when you think about every few seconds someone's dying, you know, and I can almost bet that every one of those people that are dying are making plans for tomorrow. You know, they're making plans for tomorrow. We don't know when our time is up. But here in the Bible, we have the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. And the word of God, the Bible says, is forever settled in heaven. That's where it is. We can find our hope within the scriptures. We can find an understanding of our lives within there. But to trust God completely also requires a distrust of ourselves. We have to distrust ourselves. 
The Bible says we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. If we don't have a healthy distrust in ourselves, we will be condemned to live our lives just as those who had no king in those days, those that did everything that was right in their own eyes. Romans 1 gives us that charge. It speaks about our own nature. It says that we are being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, abusers of ourselves. It says that we know the judgment of God and they which commit such things are worthy of death, but we not only do the same, but we have pleasure in them that do them. This is our natural state. It's yours. It's your natural state apart from God. So why do we trust ourselves? Why do we trust ourselves? We keep making these, these mistakes. Why do we trust ourselves this way? Final scripture passage. It's found in the Gospel of John. If you have it, turn there. Because it speaks about the one who came into the world to save that which was lost. Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. It's interesting because in Genesis you have in the beginning God. And in Gospel of John, chapter 1, it begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Verse 6, it says that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Even to them that believe on his name. It says in verse 14, it says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Who's made flesh? God made flesh, dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Eternity does exist. We'll be talking more to that next week, and I'm going to go into a little bit more detail with respect to it. Your only hope is in him. Because your sin has separated you from him. It's separated you from an eternity with God. There is a heaven and there is a hell. The hell was not created for man. It was not created for man. It was created for the devil and his angels. But we, we fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Don't you understand? Our own sin makes us into the same condemnation as the devil. God didn't create hell for you. He didn't. He didn't do it for you. But your very nature, apart from his saving grace, finds you there. Can you not see that it's God's love that wants you not to end up there? This is the very reason why he came. This is the very reason why he died. That if you believe in him, you'll have everlasting life. 
we wait. We wait. We hope that maybe that's not true. The gospel isn't the bad news, it's the good news. The bad news is the part that we don't want to hear. And that is that we are sinners, that we are fallen, that we have no desire for God, no fear of God. But friends, in eternity, your conscience is going to be fully informed. We can put away our conscience now. We can put it away. We can say, ah, that's not too bad doing that thing. It's not too bad doing that thing. And you can nullify your conscience. story was told, and I'll finish with this point, story was told of a Mexican airliner who um, crashed into a mountainside uh, a number of years ago. It was in the 1970s. And it crashed full on into the mountainside and killed everybody on board. And when they found the plane and they discovered the black box, they played the recorder to the black box. Now, it was, a, it was a very misty time that was there and the gauges that were in the plane were functioning and functioning relatively well. But the audio was coming through and it was saying, pull up, pull up. And every few seconds it would say, pull up, pull up. And the pilot looked over to it and he said to it, shut up, gringo, and turned it off. That's what we do to our conscience. That's what we do to our conscience. And if that's what you're doing, if you're hearing the word of God this morning, and you're doing that to your conscience, you might find a different mountainside. You have hope, and that hope is found in Christ. And if it were not so, I wouldn't be here telling you. I've got other things that I could be doing. I've got other things that I could be committing the rest of my life to. If this was not true, there is no chance that I'd be spending my time up here. There's no chance that I would want to dedicate my life to this. I'd be more than happy to fluff my own pillow and let this life ride be more comfortable for myself. I wouldn't be doing this. Closing prayer. As we pray... And I'd like if everybody could have their heads bowed, please. As you pray, I want you to please ask yourself this question. I want you to answer it in your own will. Will you believe the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you ask him to save you? No one else will save you. Only the Lord will. Will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the blessing that you are, the hope that you've been able to give us, the joy, dear Lord, that you can inspire within our hearts, dear Lord. But I know, dear Father, that also there is a conviction happening within the hearts of even some that are here. And I pray, dear Lord, please, that you will continue to draw out those questions within their own heart. But you will continue, dear Father, to pierce that heart. That that humility that they need, dear Father, would be one that would bow its knee to you. We give you thanks, dear Lord, for this time. We praise you, dear Lord, for this precious people and this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.